you, you cannot reach transcendence. You cannot experience a state of transcendence unless it takes on a particular context, right? Right. Like what you said earlier about, like we can point to different cultural guideposts, like Star right. Wars, for example, right. as lessons, right? That are sort of like ringing bells and like telling you to pay attention. But on some level, unless you have your own personal lived experience yes. that shows you the truth of this story in your yeah. bones, yes, right? In your bones, you will not, it won't be the same. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Corey Nathan, and what a treat it is to be able to guest host again for you today. I just love the folks at the Village Square and am incredibly encouraged by everything the team is doing for our country. So thanks for joining us for today's program, which is called Theory of Enchantment with special guest Chloe Valdery. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Our special guest, Chloe Valdery, described by New York Times columnist Brett Stevens as having an independent cast of mind and a roving curiosity, created Theory of Enchantment, an anti-racism program that actually fights bigotry instead of spreading it. This program is facilitated by Jovita Woodrich, someone who's actually been an integral part of the Village Square since its founding. In her day job, she's the Volunteer Services Director for Volunteer Florida. And you'll also hear from her very own Liz Joyner toward the end of the program. But you're in great hands with Jovita, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this conversation about the theory of enchantment as much as I did. Chloe, so glad to be with you this evening. You as well. Um, and um, I just am blown away by your work and how it resonates with me and with what I desperately desire for us mm -hmm. as people, um, which makes it hard almost to hear sometimes because of how true I believe it is and how much I want that for us. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm hoping that people are able to absorb and think through that um, sure. over the, the time that we have together this evening. Um, but you really have put out there into the world some extraordinary work. Um, and I'm really excited for us to talk about that and about you, because it's not just <laughs> your you. work. It is yeah. who you are as well that we care about, that I care about. Um, and so, of course, we want to start off. I know there are a lot of people who may have read a soundbite or two about you or not, um, but uh, just really understanding who you are and what um, the theory of enchantment is, especially those three extraordinary prongs. So whatever you'd like to kind of share as the background would be wonderful for me and for the audience. Yeah, I can definitely do that. Uh, my name is Chloe Valdery. I'm 29 years old. I created theory what? of enchantment. I'm just kidding. That's great. <laughs> I created, knock it on 30. Uh, I, I created theory of enchantment 
about three years ago uh, as an attempt to really revitalize the diversity and inclusion space um, and really infuse it with a orientation towards love, with a posture mm. towards love. And we at Theory of Enchantment believe that bigotry, that prejudice comes from very specific experiences that we as human beings have. Um, we believe mm. that if we experience scarcity, especially of a psychological nature mm -hmm. as, as human beings, and we don't have the right tools to deal with that scarcity. So we're feeling, let's say a lack of self-worth, then we have a tendency to overcompensate by projecting our own sense of inadequacy and insecurity onto the other. Mm -hmm. And we do this to defend ourselves. We do this to feel better about ourselves, but it obviously results in very damaging outcomes. And so in order to undo that and to fix that, really, we need to enter into the habit and the practice of getting in right relationship with ourselves Okay. So that we can catch ourselves, we can catch when we start to project those insecurities, we can catch when we start to project aspects or, or perceptions of ourselves even onto the other in an instance of stereotyping. And there are three principles that undergird or underpin this approach. The first principle is treat people like human beings, not political abstractions. Second principle is uh, criticize in order to uplift and empower not to tear down or destroy mm -hmm. and the third principle is try to root everything you do in love and compassion now i should say at the outset in as much as i created theory of enchantment to do all the things that i just outlined i also created theory of enchantment to work on myself like ultimately it comes from this desire within me to notice my own biases and notice my own shortcomings and try to come to a place of loving awareness and presence uh, as opposed to acting out of a place of uh, pain not dealt with in a proper way. Mm. That's the theory of enchantment uh, overview in a nutshell. Wow. Now, when you say, and I'm being, I don't know, I don't think I ever really knew what facetious meant, but I think it's correct <laughs> in this. But um, so yeah. can I say, um, treat people like human beings, um, Am I supposed to do that even if they're wrong? Yes. Uh. <laughs> yes. In fact, in fact, especially, especially when they're wrong. Um, because being wrong is a part of being human. So it's not outside, it's not outside the human experience. <laughs> right. Um, right. in fact, everything that could ever possibly pre be perceived right. by the human being or be acted upon by the in the within the human context is human. Right. And we forget that uh, so easily because we want to separate ourselves from it because we right. want to say, this is not us. This is something other. This is something alien. This is right. something foreign. But in fact, it's all a part of what it means to be human. So yeah, that's, that's where the hard part comes in. <laughs> and so when you, because I think that semantics are huge in mm. this space. Well, in general, when we're talking about any sort of, whether the hierarchy is socioeconomic, race, you know, anything, <clears throat> when you say other, yes, honestly, for me, as I was listening to you, and even in the midst of me trying so hard to think critically about things and engage my heart, when I think other, I immediately think marginalized and I think mm. minority. So can, 
can white people be other? Can whatever the majority is be other? So let's define other as in term relative to what typically people sort of use other as. Can you do that? I can think through that. Talk about it. Yeah. I can try to think through that out loud. Um, I was actually thinking about this today, how we, we, we sort of put into this broad category, we say the marginalized, yes, right? Which means people on the margin, yeah. right? That's what it actually means. But the, the thing about that concept is that is by definition relative, right? Yes. It's related to yes. whoever is not on the margins in a given context, right? right? So it's not like a specific group of people are born with an innate marginalizationness right it's relative to their treatment in a given context so yes you can have a situation in a context where the people of color are being let's say not ostracized and white people are being ostracized for being white right in that context they are on the margins because again Mm -hmm. it's a relative term and of course, vice versa, you have you can have, and we have had situations, many situations where people of color are ostracized and the people right. doing the ostracization are white. So it's a relative term. Yes. And this is very, very important to understand in the sense that what we do when we project mm-hmm. is we see, let's say if I'm projecting an insecurity that I have onto another human being, I am seeing that human in a caricatured way. Now, when I say caricatured, I want you to think of the word object. Mm-hmm. And I know that the term objectification and objectifying has right. had a lot of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, interest. A lot of people have had interest in it in the past few years, let's say. But I want people to think about this term within this particular context or through this lens. When we see another human being in such a concrete, objectified way, we are denying the mystery that Mm. lies within what it means to be. And so I think that when we see any one group of people as marginalized, what we don't realize we're doing is we're objectifying and we're turning that group of people into an object. Uh, So there's a lot, there's a lot packed into that first principle. I've sort of yes. rambled on here, but nope. yeah, <laughs> not a single bit of rambling. And I, I mean, and I think that this is so core because of the semantic component, right? Mm-hmm. So we could continue talking and people could hear the term other and hear, there are a number of different words that people could hear and mm-hmm. think one thing. So I think a little bit of unpacking as we go along, I am so sorry if you're hearing that noise, I'm so sorry, I'm not sure. What that is, but um, then people are moving forward with a particular sense um, of what what we're even talking about because yeah. of how powerful words are. So I really appreciate that weight um, being put there. And then, so the other component, and I know I would never ask you to expound on this in um, the way it's probably going to come out. But when we talk about human beings and um, human beings versus a political extraction, right? So we could do Mm. human beings for hours and hours and hours or thousands of years. But if that's going to be part of our principle, a part of the, the principle that you're sharing, 
versus a political extraction Mm. kind of in a foundational way where are we starting from with what human being is going to mean versus political extraction because I know that is so just I think it's loaded and weighted in a glorious way it's just that we can't go into all of it but if we're going to go there what are some of the things you would kind of define in that way versus political extraction so my sense is that when I speak about a political abstraction, it's it's a, it, the characterization of that is it, it comes with that quality of objectification, objectifying someone, of putting them in a box, yeah. of, of denying the mystery uh, for the purpose of political gain. And I think we're at a moment mm-hmm. specifically in the United States where this is sort of, you know, not even in the atmosphere, it's like in the water that yes. we're swimming in. Um, where sort of everything is seen through a political lens in the sense that every everyone is seen as a utility through which to gain power in a political context. Um, and that is defeating the purpose of the first principle and of what we mean when we say human being, because to be a human being is to be complex. Yes. And not just complex, but, and and this is something I've been sitting with for recent, recently, it's to be unknowable to a certain Mm. extent. There's a, and this is a part of like individualism that I think has gotten lost and the sacredness of what we mean when we talk about the sacredness of what it means to be an individual. The reason Mm. why, one of the reasons why being an individual is so sacred is because of that mystery. There's a kind of unknowability um, in the very fabric of being itself yes. and when you re- when you forget that or perhaps when you've never known that perhaps when you've never realized that about your own self let alone the other right yes. um then and given the environment that we live in given it given the sort of moment that we're swimming through right mm-hmm. now you can be tempted to reduce in your in the way that you see others you can be tempted to reduce people yes. through this very uh, narrow lens. And by reducing, you're abstracting. Yeah, It's the same sort of movement going on at the same time. Um, you are not being in touch with that beautiful richness right. that is on a, on a fundamental level, ungraspable. Yeah. Right. And so that is, that would be how, what I would offer at this juncture. Yes. (laughs) Those are the difference. No. And thank you. And that is so rich and so powerful because I think um, we use terms like love and other and human and connection in ways that sometimes either come across as a cliche or don't represent the work that you represent and are trying to share. And so I think just establishing a little bit of that groundwork helps when we're talking about waiting and anchoring Mm. what you're talking about. And even everyone in this audience, you and I, when we think about what we're entering into as we have this conversation, it's that each of us have that mystery and it's not just in um, a way that may feel um, it is ungraspable, but it is weighty as well. Yeah, at the same time. That's Exactly. Yes, exactly. And so I'm going to step back out a little bit and thank you for sharing that um, just to 
the theory of enchantment. And, you know, you wrote um, looking for an anti-racism program that actually fights bigotry instead of spreading it. Mm-hmm. Um, so a little bit of this, and I do want to be primarily proactive about it, but that means looking at what you have learned from in order to get to where you are, because it's all a journey and a learning process. What was going on that you had a sense in the DEI space was was not hitting the nail when it comes to truly moving forward. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Um, And then what we mean, what you mean by spreading it versus not when it comes to DEI and anti-racism. Yeah, that's a juicy question. I Um, know. (laughs) So a little bit more of the origin story of theory of enchantment, I think, is appropriate here. So my background is in international studies. Mm -hmm. I have a degree in international studies. My uh, focus in college was the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I had an, I got an amazing degree, an amazing education. Shout out to University of New Orleans. Incredible, incredible experience. And I found that it was it was interesting that there was an absence of a conversation about love and talking mm. about how to mitigate conflict. And so after I graduated, I moved to New York from New Orleans originally, moved to New York, um, worked at the Wall Street Journal, worked on the thesis, basically attempting to tease out love as a central force in trying to mitigate conflict and I did that I wrote the paper worked for a nonprofit for two years basically refining it again still within the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and after that uh, I didn't know what to do (laughs) and you know I had I had been talking to a lot of people Mm -hmm. and some people were like this is this is applicable to so many things. Why don't you try to bring it to high schools as a mm. social emotional learning program? Mm. And so in 2019, that's basically what I tried to do. Now, I have learned that <laughs> the school system is right. I mean, it's context dependent, but it's rife yeah. with webs of often rife with webs of bureaucracy. And, you know, it's very difficult to get a curriculum into a school. But, you know, I was I was trying my best. And then 2020 descends upon us. So I had done the curriculum. The curriculum was full of gems. It was full of people like Dr. King and Maya Angelou and all of these incredible uh, minds and thinkers. 2020 descends upon us and, you know, there's COVID. So that's a big, that's the first thing. So people are locked down, isolated, feeling alienated, disconnected. And then the summer of 2020 descends upon us and we have Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and all of this new interest in uh, anti-racism, diversity and inclusion. At this time, I was giving different interviews, showing up on different podcasts, speaking about the work I was doing. And all of a sudden, companies started reaching out to me. Hmm. And they were like, this is an anti-racism program. (laughs) And it's different from the anti-racism program or the diversity and inclusion program that has been brought into our space. Interesting. And so that is really when I started to see the difference between what I was bringing to the table and what other folks were bringing to the table. So I lay all that as groundwork. What other folks were bringing to the table was a kind of, I would say it's a a type of a program that causes separation between people. 
mm-hmm. and causes division between people. And right. it's not, I don't think it's purposeful. I don't think right. the people who are doing this are doing this on purpose. I don't think it's intentional. I think the people who are advancing these ideas like Ibram X. Kindi and Robin DiAngelo mm-hmm. are genuine in their desire to advance uh, a good future for, for the United States of America and for the future of race relations. But I think that they're still responding out of scarcity. And I'll just mm. take an example, uh, Dr. Kindi, uh, for example, who, who promotes this idea of equity in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Mm-hmm. And I believe I'm correct when I say that equity in his sort of vocabulary is defined as uh, equality of outcomes, essentially. Mm-hmm. Now, to remind us all of the first principle, three people like human beings are political abstractions. Because of the inherent mystery, or the, rather the mystery that is inherent and innate to what it means to be a human being itself, it is impossible, I wanna say this and be very clear, it is impossible to create a reality in which all people experience the same outcomes. Mm. It is not only impossible, but to try and do so would actually uh, degrade the richness of what it means mm. to be a human being. And there's a paradox involved in this, right? Because yes. when you, when obviously we want to alleviate the suffering of others, right? Obviously we want to come to a place in our society where those who are on the margins, whoever they may be, right, right. are, right. <laughs> are yes. you know, have a have something to catch them, right? Um, have a net to catch them. We want yes. to be the type of society where we take care of each other, yes. right? But that is a very different paradigm mm-hmm. from saying we want to have the same outcome. And mm-hmm. so when you, I mean, and I, and I don't mean to be, this isn't me trying to be rude. This is just me being obsessed with pop culture. Um, so I'm going to make a comparison, but I don't want anyone to feel Do insulted. It. I don't yeah. mean insult. So I was a huge Star Wars fan growing up. Huge. I was in love with Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> I had pictures of Hayden Christensen who played Anakin Skywalker in my locker as a 15 year old. I was in love with him. This like angsty, you know, uh, heartthrob who was clearly sure. making the wrong decisions. Sure. And so I am fascinated by the sort of transformation of Anakin Skywalker mm-hmm. into Darth Vader. Yeah. Now Anakin Skywalker, the reason why he becomes Darth Vader is because he cannot fathom death Mm. he cannot deal with the reality that life includes death and life is full of suffering and in particular it's his mother who suffers oh he and he can't can't save her he he foresees padme his his wife suffering and Mm -hmm. even dying in childbirth right so in a in a in a in such fear and having such fear of this potential outcome he moves over to the dark side, right? He moves over to the power of the Sith because he wants to control outcomes. Yeah. This is why he moves over. He wants to control the ultimate outcome, right? And of course he ends up bringing into, bringing into fruition the very thing. Right. That he, right. And so we have these tragedies in our pop culture, both in contemporary fashion yes. and in ancient fashion that are warning us about this. And this is a, mm-hmm. this is a perennial temptation Mm-hmm. of the human experience it will always be with us yes and so i just leave that with you as a kind of 
metaphor right for what not to do right 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 and what i what i love about your so many of your principles they all refer back to one another mm. so it's it's i you know i think you've talked about the fact that you know that there's not an order to them in the sense that they're not linear mm-hmm. but some of them happen in a particular way to open the door to others. And, you know, that is so critical to this as well, that people not hearing themselves hear, all right. And if I do this, this, and this, I will not be like Anakin Skywalker, you know, Um, (laughs) because I do think that, that caricature, the two dimensionalizing. I mean, when I watch a show, I think to myself, how could that person possibly have thought just like the, the horror story, right? Don't go in there. I knew (laughs) shouldn't have gone in there, but I'm in my own emotional trap in some kind of way. Or I think I've grown in one particular area of my life, but you know, maybe it's race where I feel like I'm doing some of the hard work that you're, Mm. you're sharing about, but then socioeconomically, I have, you know, maybe I have like a, a brand new Honda Accord, but someone else has a brand new Tesla. And so they are the worst, yeah. right? And the person behind me in the, on the road yeah. has a 1997 Honda and looks at me and says, they're the, she's the worst, right? right? And so the, the constant awareness that this the 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 potential for lessons yeah the potential for growth is not going to be linear it's going to look very personal but that we do have and this is what you include in what you do examples in entertainment all through history that mm-hmm. show us and can help us if we have kind of the ears to hear or the eyes to see or the heart to 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 absorb it yeah what some of those that trajectory can be for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is one of the things as I've been listening to and um, absorbing what you've talked about has really hit me is the, for example, socioeconomic or other ethnicities or yeah. these other ways that I'm I'm not doing these things that I do hold dear, but need the challenge and the processing to look at what hard work I am doing or I'm not doing, you know, with it. So I want to, with that, go into, um, you know, one of your quotes um, is that it's grounded in a transcendent view Mm -hmm. of humanity, which came specifically from an African-American literary tradition. And Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why I think this is so powerful and would love to hear more about this is because you use the word transcendent and African-American literary tradition. Mm, so mm, yes, it's transcendent about human beings and it happens to be from a particular um, minority literary tradition. And it's not saying this is a view that is specifically African-American, sure. right? Like you found things that are bigger Mm-hmm. than just a particular marginalized or other group that will apply to anyone who's a human being. Yes. And that is not typical to hear. Mm. It's going to be, if I'm Black and I have this thing, I'm either going to say something that's going to be contrary to who you are, or if I'm white, I'm going to say something and it's probably going to butt up against what 
you are versus maybe there are things we have to teach one another that actually have to do with all of us. And that's really what I hear when I see or hear what I see, see when I hear (laughs) all the senses (laughs) where you're talking about. So this African-American literary tradition that helps you see a transcendent humanity is wild to even say it that way. So can you share more about that? You know, I, I wonder if this could be me nostalgically, like, like projecting nostalgia onto the past, but I do wonder if, um, African-Americans in an older generation sort of like this Mm -hmm. they they were their sensibility of what it meant to be who they were Mm -hmm. was this because that's certainly the impression that I've gotten in my experience because you know Mm -hmm. I went to my the first elementary school I attended was Langston Hughes Elementary School Mm -hmm. you know uh great son of the Harlem Renaissance yes um the first poet I remember being absolutely blown away by in first grade because we had to study her was Maya Angelou, Dr. Maya mm-hmm. Angelou. So Still I Rise was the first poem I remember mm-hmm. having to memorize. And for whatever reason, you know, I was six at the time. So it's very difficult to remember. But mm-hmm. the way that that, the experience of memorizing Maya yeah. Angelou, Still I Rise as a six-year-old, mm-hmm. the way it, the way I absorbed it with everything that was going on in my life at the time was it was clearly about the African-American experience. And it was also clearly about the human experience. Yes. Like broadly speaking, right. Right. It was both at the same time. And in fact, I think that there's this other cultural script Mm -hmm. that's very popular right now, which is like likes to wax poetic about transcendence. Yes. Yes. Okay. Likes to wax poetic about, um sort of I don't know there's sort of this like association with being in the heavens as opposed to being on earth yeah there's mm-hmm. there's something like uh mm-hmm. dominant within our culture right now we want right. to we want to escape this you know mortal frame and <laughs> ascend to the heavens this is a cultural cultural script that's been dominant I think within our civilization for a very long time and the thing that I've learned is that that in and of itself is still a kind of separation. It's like there is there is no heavens without the earth, mm. right? When you, you cannot reach transcendence, you cannot experience a state of transcendence unless it takes on a particular context, right? right? Like what you said earlier about like we can point to different cultural guideposts like star wars for example as lessons right that are sort of like ringing bells and like telling you to pay attention but on some level unless you have your own personal lived experience that shows you the truth of this story in your bones yes right in your bones you will not it won't be the same right? right it won't be you won't absorb it in the same way you won't experience it in the same way and I think that's true on a larger level. The African-American experience and, and the African-American artistic tradition in response to that experience has been one on the, on the one hand was in America of incredible suffering, right? Incredible trauma, uh, incredible pain. And at the same time, the tradition has been to use the arts 
and, and I focus on the arts because, you know, it's very near and dear to me, to use the arts, to use music, to use dance, right? To use poetry yeah. as a mechanism to transform that suffering yeah. into, into an awareness of a greater truth and, dare I say, a greater love for humanity. Yes. First of all, I will say, you know, it's rare for any human being to do this, <laughs> I think, at least at least within within the recent historical timeline, perhaps it was more um, more likely to happen, I think, in the past for a whole host of reasons. But of course, that legacy is for us all, yeah. black or white, right? Yes. This is a gift. And to deny yourself or another human being the gift, yeah. which is ultimately giving them a tool through which they can learn how to transcend their own suffering, yes. right? And their own pain and be in right relationship because in order to transcend right. it, you have to be in right relationship with it, right? Yes. To deny that right. is a, not only a tragedy, I mean, it's a, it's a calumny. I don't know if I said that word right, but <laughs> it's like, we're, we're, we are, we are uh, erasing our own cultural lineage and legacy when we promote that idea i think ultimately yes <laughs> it's, i mean it is and and you know when you say the word um transcendence again with you know the um with semantics and language mm. you know um i you know i i think there are so many different terms that if you threw them out, people would go, okay, transcendence. I don't really get that. But I mean, even something like I was talking to somebody about the word patriotism the other day, mm. this idea of being with a group of people that are, are, are it's more than just you. Mm-hmm. And um, I had said something referencing tonight mm. about the idea of being able to be in a place where we could have this discussion and that people could um, feel feel ultimately a freedom. And then I said, you know what, when I think about transcendence, I think about freedom. I think about being able to be proud and thankful and take up my space in my country and my culture, but that it's not that, that the space is not so confined that I'm immediate, that I am having to take away from someone else in order to do that. Right. And that, when you talk about where we are here on earth, whether it's yeah. uh, figuratively, however people see it, that there's this bigger picture that we do tend to be drawn towards as human beings, mm-hmm. this bigger, more, um, more perfect, not in a quote unquote, yeah. in the not perfectionism way, but way of communing and yeah. connecting with each other but then also like it's a lot of hard work to even remotely get tastes of that mm. and that freedom is something that we can experience that transcendence is something that we can experience but it doesn't take away from someone else's yeah. just to do that now they may feel like it does right which is still valuable to to acknowledge but it may not, it's not that we all have the space to be walking this journey. And so with the fact that this is not one or the other, Mm -hmm. 
if you look at that second principle about criticize to uplift, to lift up and empower, never to tear down and destroy, I bet there are people who say to you, that's not possible. If it's Mm. criticism, then it is tearing down and destroying. So like, if you were going to think about the, the idea of constructive criticism, the idea of what it does mean to criticize, to lift up, what, if you have some examples of that, obviously with that foundation of love, which is a hard thing, examples, I think people would appreciate. And then also just how can you empower through criticism? It just does not, (laughs) we don't see a whole lot of it happening that way. Yeah. If that all makes sense. I just kind of. No, no, it does. I think I'm trying to figure out how I want to. to So I'm realizing that the second and the third principle are connected. I mean, they're obviously all connected, but I think that a a lot of this actually, to, to be able to criticize in order to uplift another human being, you actually have to be able to do that to yourself. Yeah. And I find that uh that's the hardest that's actually the hardest part for all of us is to you know the late great buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh who who was nominated for a nobel prize by Dr. King talks about how if you're let's say I'm angry and I don't want to be angry I don't like the feeling of being angry Mm -hmm. talks about holding your anger with loving kindness and not trying to suppress it, not trying mm-hmm. to, you know, um, repress it, but just hold it, just nurture it, just be with it. And so I think that there's a way in which that practice of self-critique, but from that compassionate lens or through that compassionate lens, that actually enables you to open up towards the other in such a way that when problems arise or when challenges arise, that you feel need to be critiqued, you can do so while still maintaining loving awareness and presence. Now, this is very difficult. <laughs> it's very, very difficult. And right. it requires practice. Yes, it requires it does. daily practice. Daily practice. Um, and I yeah. am by no means an expert. Right. Um, I will likely never be an expert because, <laughs> you know, when I feel offended, I feel it somatically. I feel it in the body. Yes. Yes. Right. I feel tension in the body. Yes. What is this practice? Is there a practice that we can adopt? And I certainly have been exposed to some of them where you learn to actually notice tension uh-huh. in the body yep. and be with tension in the body. Right. Right. There's, there's layers to this, you know? Yes, there are. There <laughs> so, are many. so I think that uh, the, the first start is actually that practice. We have a, we have a game in the theory of enchantment a uh, 90 minute sprint where we we ask people to ask themselves who am i for 3 minutes hmm. silently and to be honest with themselves about the good and the bad hmm. and to write down everything that comes to them and for everything that comes to them silently say to to themselves thank you hmm. wow. get into get into the habit of expressing gratitude for the full complexity of who you are that yeah. is so hard <laughs> it is My chest is tight just (laughs) listening to you. And I want to say it again, Chloe, are you only asking the individuals who are white in your workshops to do this exercise? You know the answer already. You know, you know this, you know, the answer to this question. No, everyone has to do it. 
And that is, I Everyone. want to hit home this, you know, and, and I, I think we can kind of go to this point too, um, in terms of what it actually looks like when you're doing this, that these hard things you're talking about, because I think pretty much everything that we have talked about, we have barely really talked about race or any of the kind of more Mm -hmm. divisive things that are, have put these rips into our democracy and into who we are and our, our true ability to connect with one another. But, um, Part of this is, even as I'm listening to you, I will have this subconscious thought in my brain that moves me towards a certain side or not Mm -hmm. because of what the things that are entrenched. Mm -hmm. So part of my like, duh, here is because I'm trying to break through as we're chatting, thinking like, oh yeah, those folks have a lot of hard work to do. (laughs) And that I, you know what, and that what Chloe's talking about is that I need to be patient with them, Mm. right? Because that's still another layer of some of the DEI um, experience, you know, um, um, programming is that, you know what, I am going to be the bigger person here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I know that human beings have complexity and need to grow. And what I'm going to do is wait for the other person to grow. Yeah. So everything you're talking about, I'm, I have to, even in this, our time together, constantly remind myself that you are talking to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm talking to me. <laughs> right. And I'm talking to me. Right? right. I think that's very, very, very important to note. Like when we when we stereotype the other yes. as a the not being the better person, right? We forget those moments when we weren't the better person. Mm-hmm. Right? Because the thing about stereotyping is people often think of stereotype stereotype only in a negative connotation right right but like if i stereotype someone as uh perfect whatever that means Mm -hmm. as perfect uh let's say a guy i'm interested in i've been known to do this uh unfortunately uh (laughs) one of my weak points but i am that's still an act of dehumanization yeah right um and when i when I stereotype someone as, as um, you know, having all of these great qualities, I'm denying the fact that these qualities are also within me. Mm-hmm. Um, when I stereotype someone as lazy, I'm denying the fact that I'm lazy mm-hmm. sometimes, right? So every active stereotype is not just a, a attack, if you will, on the other person, it's also a degradation of yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and this is why Dr. King talked about the mutuality of how everything is interconnected. This is also why the Lion King pop culture shout out (laughs) circle of life right everything is connected under the sun this is not just like a a, a like you know cute thing for for young people it is a it is a deep profound wisdom that we as a species have yet to internalize that takes a lot of practice and patience with ourselves to internalize uh but i think that once once a person internalizes it the way you you start to see both yourself and the other, right, is completely transformed. And dare I say, it is enchanted. I see what you did there. See what I, did there? I see what you did there. <laughs> now, um, I want to, um, can you can you share just real quickly what, um, and then we're going to um, 
kind of backtrack a little bit, but sure. when you talk about, because these concepts are broad, they are lifelong because we are human. Um, it, it, it encompasses the fact that we have human limitations. So we're not able sure. to execute these things, you know, so in my head, perfection could be executing, executing your three principles correctly all the time, sure, right? Sure, like yeah. it could look a whole lot of different ways, which will dehumanize in a different way. But, um, when you are doing a workshop mm-hmm. and you've got these three principles and you're sitting there you're hearing some probably really interesting things based on some of the other DEI principles and other spaces. You've got um, individuals who are white, who are black, who are other, um, mm-hmm. not other capital, but you know, who are in a variety, who have a variety of different backgrounds. Yeah. What does that look like? What can now that we've talked about some of these bigger things? What? How do you distill? Because you have to. Sure. And what can people kind of wrap their heads around who are who are listening right now in terms of what what do you do when you get these folks in a room? Uh, yeah. That's a great question. So we have two different, uh, I would say, like day orientations. We have the 90 minute sprint and then we have like a full day workshop. Um, Perhaps it would be easiest to go through the 90 minute sprint, just like broadly speaking. Um, We start with the who am I practice. Right. And then we go into a question of inquiry. Uh, What does your something like, what does your vision of a racially harmonious future look like? Hmm. That's a discussion. Cause I'm like, you gotta tell, you gotta tell us, you gotta know where you wanna go if you wanna go out there, you know? Uh, you have to have a vision, have to have a, some sort of roadmap, um, have to have a vision to build a roadmap. So, so we have that discussion. And then I say, well, what do you think stops us from getting there? And inevitably uh, things like fear come up, words like fear come up or, a big one, uh, which is the cent- central piece, actually, uh, is is fear of the unknown, hmm. right? Yeah. And so I did. I do this thing, which I'm I really, I'm I, I'm happy about it. But I I, I ask people, what's another word for the unknown? Hmm. Uh, so I'll ask you, what's another <laughs> what's another word for the unknown? <laughs> okay. Well, I was like, hmm, yes, I can't <laughs> wait for her to mention this rhetorical. Um, you know, I think mystery is right, is, is, is a powerful word, although we use that one a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes people think mystery means solve, potentially oh, yeah, solvable, yeah, yeah. Which is interesting, which is interesting, right? Yeah, you know, I, I think just based on my faith that mystery has a more of a, that unknown mm-hmm. um, component to it. Um, I have adjectives that I could put to unknown, like terrifying and um, and scary and a bit, you know, a noun like abyss or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like these words come into play for me, but it's not like an actual sure. defini- definition. No, 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 um, that's fine. That's that's totally fine. Um, so we, I like I like this because we play this game. We see like what what people's words associations are. And only a few times the word that I then have on my next slide comes up. And that word is darkness. Mm. And then I go into this whole historical thing about how we as a civilization 
because of our fear of the unknown. This is not unique to, to us as a civilization, it's very human, but specifically we in let's call it the West, because of our fear of the unknown, fear of the dark, we associated the darkness with things like evil right. and with impurity and the light yeah. with goodness. Yes. And, and so we had this split. We like to split mm -hmm. as human beings, right? Yes, we do. Um, and so then I talk about how that manifested in the injustices that we know about now, the historical injustices. And then I move to, so what, how do we do with this? We have to make peace with our own darkness and we have to become integrated essentially. And this is a term that, you know, as you know, has a lot of cultural yes. resonance, history, clout in our nation's history. But the beautiful thing, one of the unique things about the civil rights movement was that it wasn't merely seeking integration on a societal level. It understood, those leaders understood that society cannot integrate unless and it cannot integrate in a sustained way. And I think we're actually seeing the breakdown of integration right now. It cannot integrate into, in a sustained way unless the human being individually is also mm -hmm. integrated, yeah. also knows how to be in right relationship with themselves, also knows how to show nurture for their dark sides and their mm -hmm. light sides, right? I mean, integration is where the word integrity comes from, yeah, right? So this, these, these words have lost their power, but yes. we're trying to, we're trying to revivify them, right? right. Um, so I talk about the culture and the history, and then we go into a few exercises that are really about teasing out that first principle, mm -hmm. where we, 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 as participants, start to see what it means to be human, what we need to, to live and thrive as human beings. What happens when we don't have those things yeah. and we are, are in scarce moments right. and how we, what we do in scarcity, in times of scarcity, our default mechanism is to split. It's to say, all of this over here is good. Yes. All of this over here is bad, right? It's not integrated. Yeah. So we go through these practices and these exercises and it's sort of populated with pop culture references to also uh, uh, help along the way. That's the general right. uh 90 minute sprint. And then in the full day workshop, we do that plus the other two principles. Yeah. And we do, yeah. we bring in stoic practices because right. we're trying to, we're trying to alter the lens through which we see the world, which can only right. happen by altering the lens through which we see ourselves. Right. So mm -hmm. we, we bring in stoicism, we bring in appreciative inquiry, we bring in all of these different methodologies and practices just as tastes. Cause you know, you can only do so much even in a full day. Mm -hmm. get people thinking in different ways cognitively speaking um seeing through different frames so that they can eventually hopefully commit to the <laughs> only thing that can sustain this by the way right which is a practice when you talk about these components of your workshop which are practice and are lifelong. In my mind, I think you get people who kind of roll their eyes that think you're sort of kumbayaing, which is unfortunate because that is a term that had has significance in an actual way. So yeah. I apologize <laughs> even for being the yeah. person who just did that. Yeah. But um, you know, people. I'm going to just kind of go through these things that, that I think sometimes ticker tape for people like, okay, yeah. 
all right, I'm going to, I didn't get enough hugs growing up. I, um, you know, whatever those things are, but then also, um, this is for the other people Mm. who, like I was mentioning before, or this is great, but there's still all these systemic things that we're having to deal with. That's a big one. That one comes up a lot. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's do that one first, actually. (laughs) This, this systemic versus, okay, it, it, I'm not going to make a difference. What are we going to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How can I be an ally? What's the next step? Give me three things to do to fix things. Or how are we going to make this systemic oppression? What are we going to do with that? So I bet that comes up a lot. And I would love for you to share some about that. I mean, and it's, it's, it's legitimate because there are so many people whose hearts desperately want to to see that transcendence, to see communing, not because we all agree perfectly, but because we do see one another's humanity, but we have gotten so many competing thoughts about how to move forward. And so this systemic component, I think Mm -hmm. people really go after and are concerned about, Uh, rightly so. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, I understand the urge and the yearning for nirvana i understand the the urge and the yearning Mm -hmm. for heaven on earth you Mm -hmm. know and i think that there's 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 a little bit of that actually there's a there's a a lot of that there's a lot of that in our, our impulse as human beings to want to recreate institutions Mm -hmm. and systems but the problem with that or the challenge of that is if I am acting subconsciously from a place, let's say, of anger or jealousy, mm-hmm. and I don't know that I'm acting out of that place okay. in, a, in a situation, right? If I am not even in touch with mm-hmm. the inner workings of my own being, yeah. then how am I going to somehow be able to transform an institution? Uh. I see through these eyes. Right. I feel through this heart. You know, there's a saying in Zen Buddhism, which I think is like paradoxical and poetic, but somewhat true in a in a in a in a, in a essential way. And it's it's this guy whose name I'm gonna mispronounce, so I'm not gonna even try. I apologize. But he basically says in a series of writings called Only Don't Know, which is a fascinating title in and of mm. itself. He says go work on yourself. I hope you work on yourself, find enlightenment. And by finding enlightenment, you will free all beings. And there's something very true, I think, about that. There's a a kernel of truth about that. And also there's something very hard, much harder than tearing down. Let's say we tear down an institution and build another one up, right? That institution is going to reflect and express the relationships that we have with ourselves, the relationships that we have with our family members, the relationships that we have with our friends, the relationships that we have with our enemies. There is no getting beyond this. (laughs) Right, right. Which is is not, um, certainly we can grieve that in some ways, but also then the, the hope because we do have, it's, we should it's okay it. to do that. Yeah. And then the hope comes from the very same thing. And I, I was thinking about, you know, here in, 
in in town, I um, or just in general in my own spheres of influence, there are things that I'm listening to you say that I know I can code switch, not in, but I'm saying to white friends, black friends, older people in my life, younger people in my life, like um, that the way that you're talking about humanity then gets as I'm as I am practicing, as I am acknowledging these things, as I am grieving this reality yeah. that behind everything, whether it's, you know, a, you know, crypto yeah. smart contracts and, or, you know, whatever, I'm sorry, I, I was listening to a <laughs> podcast on this because I don't understand it, but the person was saying behind everything is still human beings, yeah. right? And they were just talking about DeFi or what, I don't even know what that means, but <laughs> you know, that what you're saying is that truth. And so as I grieve that, and then I take a deep breath, recognize and say, you know what, I'm not going to perfectly do the hard work all the time because I am yeah. limited, but that I am, I believe that this is the way to self-actualize in a way that is going to serve other people. Cause I think what you said is huge and I'll go back to that in a second, but that I can then begin to look at my relationships and share and walk life with them the way that I do it. Not the way mm-hmm. Chloe does it, not the way, you know, whoever the person is, but I can begin to absorb and be enchanted. And then it will look a specific way for me and for my boss or for my coworker or my daughter or whatever, it's going to manifest in a way that will be really powerful instead of desperately needing like a full script for my life. Right. Right. Which there's a, there's a not analog, but there's a, there's a parallel I'll say between this desire to, you know, and I have this impulse too, but like right. completely make, make over everything Yes. in its entirety. There's a, right. there's actually a desire or, or a parallel between that and needing to be in control of everything. Yes. We are not in control. <laughs> Sorry to break it to you, everyone. But Chloe, <laughs> I need you to tell me how yeah. do I make someone else an anti-racist? <laughs> Um, I need you. And so here's one thing that's kind of come up, I think, in some some waves here, because and it's understandable if I would love for you to say or share what what do you think about the the term ally or allyship? Because even in that, if I say and this, I think I've even seen this with how I interact with my daughter. This is kind of an odd example, but hopefully it connects. There are times where I've had my husband or a friend say, you are not taking care of yourself. You're not dealing with your own things, but you are very much attentive to what your daughter needs. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But the best mom I can be is in also taking care of myself. I'm oversimplifying. But when I think about Sometimes people going, but all I want is to see Black people succeed. All I want is to see women succeed. All I want, and some of that hard work is happening in a guilt way, in a Mm, white fragility way, in a whatever. 
is that really the best way, not best, you know what I mean by that? Is that going to be the way for lasting, loving change if that self-examination isn't happening? But someone says, but I care about you all, whoever the you all is. Right. How do I do that? And that's what, speak about that. (laughs) Speak about that allyship, some of your thoughts about those things. I was actually on a podcast recently with a mentor of mine, uh, Brett Stevens, who, who noted the distinction between allyship and friendship. And he talked about mm. how allyship, allyship is a term that has caught fire in the past few years, mm-hmm. but it really means getting everyone to agree with the same political ideology you hold. I mean, that's ultimately what ally, how allyship manifests. Mm-hmm. And that's not the same as friendship. Um, and he he suggested and I agree with him a transition in the way that we think about being in relationship with each other from allyship where where it's utilitarian right it's instrumental it's it's the instrumentalized this is political abstraction but actually it's the instrumentalization of wow your relationships for a political goal right but it's not friendship that's one and the other thing that I'll say is again to just keep uh highlighting dr king's observation that everything is interconnected there's a mutual web of interconnection right it's not like if i work on myself then i'm not working on my relationships with like by working on myself i show up in those relationships completely differently so it's not one or the other right and I understand, and again, I fall into this mindset often. So everything I'm saying to you and to, to those who have joined us this evening, I'm saying to myself, it is easy to fall into a separation. Yes. It is easy to see through a lens of, separ- of separateness. Um, so I get it. Like, it, that's why it's hard. <laughs> that's why it's so hard. Yes. And I, I do want to give this quick, Liz is going to come back on with some good questions. I am, you know, just in the spirit of vulnerability, um, you know, it, Tallahassee is predominantly two races. Now, as you've talked about, and I think so many of us get, diversity is, there are just waves and oases of it when it comes to a group of white people standing together and a group of black people like that is nothing compared to what's going on in between, you know, amidst them as individuals, Mm. even within their race. But I, so we don't have, for example, large other minority populations Mm. here in Tallahassee. And I have had a number of encounters, you know, I am not terribly pleased to say where my behavior has been identical to the behavior of white people that I've had to be so long suffering with Mm. because they have been, I have had to educate or I have whatever my perspective was at the time, but I would find myself doing the same things with a particular group of people with, um, not even just ethnic, ethnically, yeah. that because I didn't have a familiarity, I was doing those same things. And I would on occasion go, yeah, but I mean, I'm a fellow minority or I'm a fellow whatever yeah. and do Had what to. I, to make <laughs> myself feel okay about my behavior. And so I just, I just want to thank you just in the the conversation we've had this far for this constant reminder about our humanity in the midst of 
whether it's that I was treated poorly by somebody down the street or because of the systemic struggles that I'm dealing with, that we all have work to do that we can do together. That's not linear. It's going to look different for each of us. It's kind of going to be more of a dance than it is like an A plus B equals I've, I, I've gotten all the theory of enchantment, like one through threes. Um, I'm done, <laughs> but, but that it's, but that it is, it is hard and it is worthwhile. Yeah. And that um, if we want to see our democracy reignited or just our humanity um, revivified, that this is, it, there's no way around it, right? Like I can't bypass it. My bypass doctor it. told me I have high cholesterol. That's right. I'm 41 and I have high cholesterol. And mm-hmm. I said, can't you just give me a pill for it? She said, no, you have to stop with the refined carbs. And I was like, but I need a pill for this. I don't want to deal with it. So anyway, I'm going to turn it over to Liz, but that is my, I'm going to go with that metaphor for <laughs> the reality of what, what you're, what you're sharing with us. But I know we have some great questions and yeah, you really absolutely. are extraordinary and very brave for putting these things out there in the midst of a, of a paradigm right now that is not mm-hmm. saying what you're saying. So, um, so I want to tell a a quick story and then I'll ask some questions. One is that um, Vita and I are are involved and a lot of people in our community are involved in a project we have called Local Color. And we were sitting around thinking about topics one day and it's a group of probably a very racially diverse group that's, that's having this conversation. And we came across the idea of having a program on the, the title ended up being our white liberals accidentally slowing racial progress, question mark. And so we asked the question in the room, and this is like on the topic of allyship. And in some ways, I, I, I'd really like to, you to say something about the, the notion the, the notion that we want to be fixed, like, we, like oh, the yeah. humans are fixed, yeah. that we are one thing. Yeah. And in this particular program, what happened is that the people of color in the room, when we asked this question, should we have this top this topic? They all went, yes. <laughs> it was, it was actually really, really it was immediate. Like, oh, wait a minute. I didn't expect yeah, yeah. that kind of reaction. Yeah. And then when we put it out to the public and had, you know, it was in the press and um and we had a big, huge room full of people, we've never gotten more pushback than that. And I wonder, is that because in some ways I kind of as a white uh, liberal leaning human that I kind of want to pass in some mm. ways I want to make myself fixed mm. and say, yeah, I'm, I'm done. I'm, you know, I'm kind of on your side. So don't ask that question. Mm. It was rough. It was really rough. I think that the, I mean, I, within myself have a, have, I get into these stages where I seek absolution. I seek being absolved. Uh, and I think it's because I grew up in a religious uh, background where th- there's a lot of uh, that in the in the texture. However, I was looking up the etymology of the word absolve the other day, and it's actually mm. not this. It's the opposite of objectification. <laughs> it's mm. the opposite opposite of turning someone into an object. It's actually like absolving, right? Without mm. sort of the concreteness. But um, to answer your question about fixing, I mean, fixing is related to objectification. I was reading a book called longing for desire or, or open to desire what the buddhist buddha actually taught i'm on i've been on a buddhist trip these days if you can't tell but um 
it was a book written by Mark Epstein, psychotherapy person. And he talks about this concept of fixing and how fixing has two meanings. We think of fixing and to, to like fix, like to perfect someone, right? And also to fix something is to stop it from moving, right? But what it means to be a human is to be, what it means to be in general, reality is constant change, constant movement, constant flow, right? There's a beautiful series on Netflix called Our Universe, uh, where Morgan Freeman does the voiceover. And it's about mm-hmm. like the unfolding of our universe. And it's about this fact, of the, about the fabric of reality that everything is constantly in flow. And I think there are a whole host of reasons, historical and cultural, why we as a species became, I would say actually oppressed by this notion of separation, which causes us to see both ourselves and the other as beings needed to be fixed and locked in and and stayed as opposed to at one with this dynamic flow, which is actually the nature of reality itself. And that's why I say it takes practice because it takes practice to get back to that realization to return to that reality um, as it has always been. But we have this tendency because we're afraid of the unknown and the unknown is full of potential. It's full of the potential for good and it's full of the potential for danger, right? And it's very difficult. And we have to literally train our immune systems to be able to be in dance, be in flow with the unknown in such a way that we're not trying to constantly fix things and control things in, in such adamant ways. So I'm going to ask you two questions that are just a little bit different um, from the audience um, and you can engage with them however you want. One is, is, is there anyone who you just can't reach? You know, is there, is there a point you say, well, yeah, I, we couldn't do that. There's just going to be no hope. And the other one, um, a little different is, what do you say to people who kind of say, well, you're asking a lot of people who are coming from, who have suffered, of a people who have suffered more historically and in the present, why is it that that they have to keep doing this work? So I'm going to leave that one last because I love that, another juicy question. Um, the first question, I think, I mean, I am here to serve, you know, like if, the people in my workshops and the people who, you know, ha- take our online course, which is more of that long-term practice uh, sort of project, they're often coming to me and looking to theory of enchantment for a service. And so I really don't know how to answer that question because it's such a hypothetical. Everything is context dependent, right? So it's possible that I could see myself in a situation where someone's not reachable like someone's not attuned to what I'm saying and that's okay right like that's also part of the human condition by the way um, everything's part of the human condition so I, I don't know it'd be context dependent uh, but for the last question this is a question that vexes me because I think it reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of what was happening specifically in the civil rights movement, or rather it it reflects a tendency that we have to caricature folks in the civil rights movement and others who fought for freedom. And what I mean by this is when you caricature African-Americans who have suffered and fought for their rights as merely the oppressed, right? When you see them through, when you see this particular group through that very narrow lens, you are denying the other intricacies 
of the community. It is true that the community has been historically materially oppressed. It is also true that the community has shown up in such a way that reflects a deep and profound sense of wholeness that their oppressors did not possess. And in fact, this means that their oppressors were also suffering. And in fact, this is what Dr. King wrote about extensively. This is what James Baldwin wrote about extensively. This is something that has helped inspire the second principle of, a, of the theory of enchantment. When someone is acting out of a supremacist tendency, their sense of self-worth has been so tarnished that they're overcompensating by trying to tear you down or by trying to tear another person down. What we have to develop the capacity to do is two things at once, to criticize, right? To point out why that is bad and flawed and unjust and to seek repair, restoration, and simultaneously understand that the person who is doing that is also in need of restoration, is also in need of repair. We do not have, as a society, we don't have that lens, but that is the lens through which the civil rights leaders acted upon, right, and saw their world. So it's not either or, it's yes and. An oppressor or someone who's sort of, we put into that category, you know, James Baldwin said, we don't know how to deal with pain. He says specifically, that the reason why we cling to our hatreds and our bigotries is because we do not know how to deal with pain. And this is true. And so in the theory of enchantment landscape, bigotry is almost seen as a kind of addiction that is reached for like a drug, like a, like a, a beverage, right? In order to deal with pain. And if you can see one of the elements that I described without the other, then you're not seeing the full picture of what's actually happening. Um, you, you talked about how in some ways you sort of think that we kind of skate across the top of Dr. King's work, uh, one of your heroes, and about kind of what Dr. King and his movement did before their before they marched or anything to get themselves prepared to be in the right space to be able to move hearts. Yeah, so, I mean, Dr. King was obviously a pastor, right? Came from the Christian spiritual tradition, right? This is very relevant because if you're coming from any faith background, if you're coming from any religious background, you are tied to, you are bonded to a ritual. And ritual is basically when you hear ritual, hear practice, right? So the people who were coming out of the South in the African-American community were part of a rich spiritual community with the, with the African-American church as its center in many ways. And what that means is that they had a very, let's say existential, let's say sacred viewing of what it meant to be human. And that came with all sorts of practices. A, a spiritual lens in and of itself is a different lens through which to view yourself and, and other humans. But more specifically, what, how that manifested was that these people were aware of a lot of the things that I'm talking about. And in fact, learned from, right? Learned from them. They were aware that even as they were protesting people who are being racist, that they too were capable of becoming racist. Dr. King said, 
never let a man pull you so low as to hate him, right? So they're aware of this and they practice, they practice what would happen, you know, once they got to the diners and the other places of establishments where they would protest, they knew that they would be spat upon. They knew that they would be cursed out. They knew that they would be pushed and shoved. And they actually simulated that outside of the, that, that context in their own arena so they could practice not only not fighting back, but maintaining that mental state where they're able to critique what the action right, of their brothers and sisters while simultaneously loving their brothers and sisters. Right, it's it's the two that that are really consequential here. So, in you know, I think that this this type of practice specifically has many different names. You can call it, but what we call it in theory of enchantment is shadow work, and we it's it's partially inspired by Carl Jung, famous psychiatrist of the of the twentieth century. But shadow work is the process by which you start to identify attributes and the other that essentially trigger you and trigger your ego, right? That makes your ego say, I am better than this other person. And also that makes your ego objectify that other person as only this one thing. And I try to do this practice once a week, but we have people in our workshops actually think about a person who, you know, in their interpersonal relationships, trigger their ego, did something that, they, that made them think that they were better than them identify what that behavior was, and then you identify how that behavior shows up within you. It's an uncomfortable practice. You become more comfortable with it over time, the more you practice it, right? And that's why practice is, is so key. But yeah, like the, the folks who came out of the civil rights movements who were, were coming out of communities of practice in the deep South. And so that is such a crucial piece and it, it cannot be overlooked. I love that. And I love... I, I did want to say real quickly, because there's so many small course corrections, so to speak, in really drilling down to our humanity that you're doing with the theory of enchantment. So for example, it's not the other saying, when has somebody made you feel less than? And mm -hmm. then on the other side saying, when have you felt better than another person? As if right. the question should be separate right. for each entity or subculture or subgrouping, like the question is the same for everyone in everything that you're, you're talking about. And I, I, every time Liz asks a question, asks a question or anything that I've read, I just keep coming back to, you know, I'll, I'll even start to kind of get hopeful that you're going to say something that's going to be easy and that I could just go do, <laughs> you know, I'm like, but again, you can do the way my practice. Where's the pill, Chloe? Where's the pill, Chloe? And so the, that, the perseverance in this, I just appreciate mm. how that integrity, part of that integration is we're going to integrate the truths of this throughout this. Yeah. which is, it's going to be hard work, not a JK. Here's the part where you can fake it or do it quickly. Yeah. Um, because this part looks more romantic than this other part or whatever. You're not optimizing for that kind of thing. And I know that because I get irritated when I think <laughs> about 
some of the things that you'll say that remind me of my own either complacency or ego, which is also the inferiority and the inadequacy that you talk about as well. But I am appreciative of that because being held to what I believe and, and can be reminded of and have to dig through Mm -hmm. in a way that genuinely, and I sense makes me who I would like to become and who I am. Right. So it's not always that I'm going to be somebody in the future is um, it is, it's difficult, but also um, it is, I see how worthwhile it is and I sense Mm. it. And that's hard for somebody like me because I am not, yeah, anyway, we could talk offline about crazy <laughs> person I am, but so I really appreciate this. I am challenged and also mm. encouraged in in myriad ways. Well, can I just add two more things really quick? Um, yes. <laughs> so, thank you. <laughs> I was like, is there a time delay? <laughs> um, it's very, very difficult to be who you are. So I'll just say that it's like on a, on a sublime way. It's very difficult to be who we are. So it's, as you said, it's not just who you will become, it's who you are. Yes. And I will encourage you, remind you of that third principle, right? Where everything you do in love and compassion, so when you notice, right. when you notice your ego, mm-hmm. right? When you notice your angst, when you notice your frustration, hold all of those things yes with love and kindness this is the meaning of unconditional love mm. this is love and kindness for yourself which then yes. then you can create for others which then comes back again for yourself right. yeah and then it just becomes it. this dance right so last couple questions first um, how can people get involved with theory of enchantment? And actually, we've got a specific question in here from someone who says, can you do your 90-minute training? Um, they want to do it at school, but they wouldn't be able to come to you or bring you to them. Um, we do definitely do virtual trainings for the 90-minute sprint, at least. Uh, you can email info at theoryofenchantment.com. Uh, you know, there, specify what you would like to to discuss, and we'll definitely be in touch. For those of you who want to take a leap into the practice, as I mentioned, we have an online curriculum, and that is really where you get into the habit formation, uh, practice-oriented approach, and, and that's on our website, uh, which you can check out as well. And so, and that would be for organizations, too, can get involved. Yeah, both organizations and individuals can enroll in that program. Uh, So Jovita, I'll defer the last question to you if you've got one on the tip of your tongue. It would be, and I don't know if you could do this, this, this quickly, but if you were going to say the most consistent barrier for people as you have done this work, you know, whether it's a kind of a sentence, whether it's an other, if it's othering or people's Mm. own, um, because I am brutal to myself. So maybe it's just that lack of Mm self-compassion, but is there, is there, um, something that you've seen that has been the, the bigger of the multiple barriers to really doing this work? Yeah, for sure. Without a doubt, always and then always the biggest barrier is self-love. Okay. 
So I should have self-love or not? What's you the should. moral? <laughs> what's the moral? I forgot You're the moral. Right. I should have phrased that better. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm I, I was I was I'm wanting that to land so beautifully, and then the subject grammar it did. It, it did. It did. It wasn't sorry. even right. It lack absolutely of self, did. <laughs> lack of self love. Absolutely. People don't love themselves. People. Thank people you. haven't practiced it, cultivated it, and yeah. we have to learn. We have to learn how to do that. And, and that that's not a pill, but it sounds kind of good as as <laughs> something you need to pursue, right? Yeah. Well, and that it's weighty, and that like me saying to myself, why can't I just love myself is not what you're saying, right? Is that it's, it's a really beautiful, valuable, weighty thing for yeah. me to be able to love myself as well as other people, because it's easy for me to say, absolutely. I want to do the work to love other people, but the other way is not, doesn't, doesn't go so well for me. So I really appreciate, I need to hear that. And that we're not talking about just kind of liking ourselves okay. That love <laughs> yeah. love is something a lot bigger than that if we want to do transformative Absolutely. work. So thank you. Absolutely. I, I want the two of you to know that I love you. And this has been an extraordinary conversation. This is a hug. <laughs> right back at you. Um, it's been extraordinary. Chloe, thank you so much for being our guest tonight, Vita. Thanks for being our our guide on this journey. And um, I, I personally plan to be um, a regular fangirl of yours as, as you continue to think and go through this journey of yours. And it really has been delightful. Um, So I will say on behalf of Florida Humanities, the Village Square, and our streaming partners, we'd like to thank you for joining us tonight, everyone. Uh, We adore you too. Thank you and good night. Good night. Good night. Wow, what a helpful, enlightening, inspiring conversation. Corey Nathan, back here with you. I just really appreciated that dialogue. One of the many takeaways that really hit home for me was Chloe's introduction of shadow work, specifically that it's a practice. Like (laughs) they were joking about, it's not like you could take a pill and bam, you got this thing. But holding space and grace for the other, even if not, especially when they're our oppressor, that's a practice. It takes work. So much to think about and work on. (laughs) But with that, it's time to close out today. So please consider joining our members in supporting this program. You can become a member for just $7 a month or $76 a year. And your business can join for 250 Go to villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. That's villagesquare.us slash donate. And while you're there, sign up for Village Square's newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square. Go to villagesquare.us and scroll to the bottom for the sign-up box. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Check out Florida Humanities online at floridahumanities.org. We appreciate you listening to Theory of Enchantment with Chloe Valdery. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast.